Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. My name is Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your Beware of Time Traveling Poets speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This month, we're reading Hannah Goodhart and the Guardian of Time by C. Michael Morrison. This is a book published in 2019. And while that is years ago now for you who are listening to this, as I'm recording the episode, this book is only three weeks old. It literally just came out. It is the most recent book we've ever done anywhere on the network. That is probably always going to be true, though, you know, that might be a gauntlet I'm throwing down to you, a challenge of sorts. And of course, that's not usually our MO around here, right? We're a lot more interested in stories that have had some time to settle, stories that we can look at with some historical perspective. But I was really excited for this book to come out. And frankly, the only way I can justify reading anything these days is if it is going to be used in my classroom or on a podcast. And so here we are. But the reason I was so excited for this book is that C. Michael Morrison is a friend of the network and he's a creator I admire very much. I came to know Mike Morrison as the host of Metatrex, a Star Trek and philosophy podcast, which is my favorite Star Trek podcast, though please don't tell Valerie I said that. And Mike has even been a guest on the network. He, he's come on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast to talk with me and Brandon about the absolute masterpiece story, La Bafana, which explores the idea that Christ might be born again on an alien world. And if you haven't listened to that episode of the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, or if you haven't read that story, I, I really recommend it. I mean, I recommend both of those things. But there's another reason I was very excited to do this episode, and that is that we have not ever done a YA book or, or a kid's book before, even though that is a massive part of speculative fiction, right? I mean, I'm sure that we all have cherished favorites from our childhood. So this will be our first one, and it is about time, I think, though I do not think it will be our last one. So all right, with all that preamble done, let's take a deep breath and get ready for Hannah Goodhart and The Guardian of Time. So this is the story of Hannah Goodhart, and it is told by Hannah herself. It's Hannah's 13th birthday, and she's preparing to have a party for her friends. And there is a lot riding on this party, because Hannah's family has recently moved from the Dallas suburbs to a farm in the countryside. And this means that she's missing her friends. But she's also worried about losing touch with them. I think we've all been through this at some point in our lives, or something like this anyway. The farm is important. Hannah's parents have recently inherited this farm from Hannah's great-grandparents, who were an important part of her life. And really, the, the way that this is phrased here is that Hannah is the reason for the inheritance. Her great-grandparents insisted that Hannah and her parents move to the farm once, once they've passed away. And right away, like as soon as they get there, there is an inciting incident when Hannah discovers a small metal cube with strange writing on it in her brand new backyard. It's really a pendant, something easily lost or misplaced. But... It is also a strange object, and, and therefore it's a real mystery for Hannah. What is it, and where did it come from? How did it end up here in the yard? Hannah's father is a freelance writer, and he's done a lot of work for an antiquing magazine, and so he knows an old guy who runs an antique shop in Dallas who might be able to tell them some more about the provenance of this strange metal cube. Now, this guy's going to turn out to be the bad guy, this antique guy, though we don't know that just yet. All we know at this point is that he'd really like to buy this pendant from Hannah, but she has uh, an intuition that she shouldn't do that, and so she declines his offer. Back home, Hannah does some sleuthing, and she discovers an old journal of her great-grandfather's and uh, an old camera that belonged to her great-grandmother. 
these are clues to what's going on, both for us and for Hannah. And because there have also been some other clues, we know at this point, we know what Hannah does not. And that is that she is in possession of a device that will let her travel through time. And that, in fact, her great-grandparents knew her long before she was born, and that everything they did with their lives was to help Hannah in this moment, which they knew was coming. As all this is going on, there is also a a break-in at the farmhouse, and we know that this is about the cube, and we also know who did it, though I will say that Morrison does a great job here of giving us at least one plausible red herring, as any mystery should. Okay, so the break-in was unsuccessful, so the antiquities dealer shows up at the house to demand the cube from Hannah, and this is the night of the, the birthday party, so all of her friends are there too. And there's a showdown, and, and during this showdown, Hannah reveals that she has figured out that the antiquities dealer is a time traveler, and she's done this through the old photos and the, the journals that she found. And what's more, and, and what's really my favorite aspect of the book, this guy this guy is actually the ancient Greek poet Hesiod, who wrote the Theogony and uh, Works and Days. And as you can imagine, I'm, I'm going to have more to say on that in the next segment. But for now, what matters is that some mystical stuff happens here as the cube is activated and Hannah and all of her friends are transported somewhere else. All of this so far has just been the inciting incident for what the the book and, and, and really then, of course, also subsequent volumes are going to be about. So after this mystical transportation, Hesiod is nowhere to be found. But Hannah and her friends, they, they find themselves on another planet in another galaxy, the, the guests of a benevolent organization that is keenly interested in Hesiod and, and also, and maybe especially, the Cube. Now, at this point in the narrative, we've actually already met these people because of a peculiarity of the narrative structure and the narrative voice. I'm going to talk about that in another segment as well. And these people are called the Colossians. That's their their species name. And in particular, these guys are sentinels by vocation. They're the special servants of the Creator, though perhaps not the only special servants of the Creator. And they've been the protectors of the cube. But really, they've only been the custodians of it, while in fact they've been awaiting a proper guardian. That's a proper noun there, a capital capital word there. And this is the guardian of time who is invoked in the title of the book. And all of this is wrapped up in a cosmic battle between the forces of good and evil, or light and dark, of course, we've seen that before. And it has become increasingly urgent that they find the guardian right now. But they also have to get the cube back, and that means finding Hesiod, who, it turns out, is himself a Colossian sentinel, uh, even though he resembles a human. Hesiod and another Colossian, this Colossian named Theseus, of course, you've heard that name before too, they were sent with the cube to find the Guardian. But then Theseus disappeared, and Hesiod took the cube, and he's been using it for his own purposes. But while he was doing that, it, it got lost somehow. But now he has it again, and it is going to be up to Hannah and her friends to find Hesiod and recover the cube. On top of that, it is now going to be Hannah's job to find the Guardian, give the cube to this person for use in the coming cosmic battle. So, you know, no pressure. And I have to say that this scene is a lot of fun. It is deliberately modeled on the Council of Elrond. There's even a little gag in which Hannah's friends become Merry and Pippin. Uh, it's great. It's really well done. All right, so you've seen this coming. Now we get to chase Hesiod through time, and this focuses on two settings. And the first is the assassination of President Kennedy in Dallas in 1963. 
And this incident has already been introduced to us by this point because it was a key moment in the journals and the photos of Hannah's great-grandparents who were in Dallas that day and who had a photo of, of Hesiod. I mean, not a photo of Hesiod, but a photo in which Hesiod appears in the background. And this episode introduces us to those characters, though Hannah does not explain to them who she is. And it also shows us that Hesiod has his own agenda, that he's, he's traveling through time for some specific purpose of his own. And most importantly, this is how Hannah's great-grandparents come into possession of the cube to begin with. The, the Hesiod from this time, the Hesiod from the past, bums into them and, and, and drops it. Uh, you know, cla- classic move here in a time-traveling story. The second focal setting is ancient Greece. It's the place and time in which Hesiod wrote Works and Days and the Theogony. And this really is that Hesiod, by the way. And here is where we learn that Hesiod, a, a collosion on assignment, you'll recall, that Hesiod fell in love with a human woman and married her and started a family. And he did this while he was also attempting to carry out his mission to find the Guardian. But he maintained this family as his home base while he, he traveled through time. And he went around looking for the Guardian as a kind of day job. And then he would come home in the evening. And that's what he was doing when he time traveled to Dallas 1963 and, and lost the cube and that meant that he got stranded away from his wife and his daughter. And this whole time, he's just been trying to find the cube so that he can get back to them. Now, this is obviously, this is a heartbreaking story, but there is a little more to it than that. Because Hesiod is also responsible for the disappearance of Theseus in the first place. Hesiod may have continued to search for the Guardian as his day job, but he really was supposed to go back to Kalos with Theseus. But of course, he didn't want to do that. And at this point, Theseus fell into a ravine, and that really was an accident. He, he was not pushed. But Hesiod declined to get him out, though he did continue to bring him food and water. And, and that is how badly Hesiod did not want to leave his family. And while that impulse is perhaps understandable, right, we can understand, we can empathize with his emotions, it is an abhorrent act. It's a disgusting act. And so when Hannah catches up to Hesiod and gets the cube back, she's faced here with a choice about what to do with him, about whether to leave him with his family or to bring him back to the, the Sentinels to face their judgment, their punishment, possibly. And Theseus, she's, you know, she's rescued him, of course. Theseus cautions against leaving him here, and, and so does one of her friends. But Hannah decides to show mercy. She decides to forgive Hesiod for his crimes and... Remember that one of these crimes includes threatening to kill her parents, and so she allows him to stay with his family. All right, so this part of the adventure is over. Hannah still hasn't found the Guardian, but at this point she, she needs to return to Kalos with Theseus. And of course, as you have seen coming, it turns out that Hannah is actually the Guardian. She's been the Guardian the whole time. Some of the Sentinels suspected it already, but when she showed mercy to someone who had wronged her, they knew for sure that it was her, that she was the guardian. And so the mission of this book really is complete. The mission is complete for now, at least. And so Hannah and her friends, they, they return home and Hannah can go back to her regular life. Uh, just, you know, now with the, the sacred mission of guarding this cube. And she also needs to be ready for the battle against the darkness, which the Sentinels now know is coming much sooner than expected, and which has definitely become aware of Hannah. The darkness is aware of her. It knows about her now. But all of that is going to be for the next volume. All right, let's talk themes. 
Being a YA book, we have got some pretty strong themes and motifs here. Some ideas that Morrison hammers home again and again. And I think that he has done a great job, a marvelous job of this. The two themes, the two motifs that I think really stand out the most are family and the Christian values of mercy and forgiveness. Family is all over this book. It it even opens with the backstory of Hannah's parents and grandparents and and great-grandparents. We learn where everyone was born. We learn what they did with their lives. And we learn all about their relationships with one another. And people in Hannah's family make significant choices that place family considerations at the top. Uh, Place family considerations over careers and ambitions, for example. We see this even when we're told about the circumstances that have brought the Goodhart family to this farm from their home in the suburbs, where presumably Hannah's parents had constructed a life for themselves. Hannah feels attached to her family, going back three generations all the way to her great-grandparents. It's their farmhouse that they live in now, and she misses them now that they are gone And she's also intensely curious about them. And when she finds the journal and the camera, she is really excited to get to know who they were when they were younger. And of course, right, she literally gets to do this because it's a time travel story. And these scenes are all remarkably touching. At first, back in JFK's assassination, she does not want them to know who she is because we've all seen Back to the Future and we know all about the dangers of paradoxes. But when she meets them again later, it's about 14 years before her own birth, They know who she is, and they've been expecting her, and they've already been living a life that is focused on this great-grandchild that they know that they're going to have someday. All of this is really heartwarming. They love her simply because she's their family. They don't even know her as a person yet, and they had just one bizarre encounter with her 40 years previously. Family is also behind Hesiod's motivations as well. He was sent to Earth on a mission, but he fell in love and he had a child, and so he decided to stay there. And then, of course, he loses the time travel cube, and he's trapped in 1963 with no way to get back to his wife and his daughter. And even before we know any of that, even before we think of him as the villain, we know that he mourns for a child he's lost. And in this scene, when when we meet him, this scene is actually, I think, one of the strongest in the book. Morrison is is able to show us Hesiod's loss and, and his grief without explaining it to us. It's a wonderful scene. It's also a heartbreaking scene. And ultimately, because Hesiod was not a genuine bad guy, but really was just making selfish decisions because he wanted to get back to his family, Hannah shows him both mercy and forgiveness. And we should be clear here that Hesiod did threaten to murder her parents, and she spends much of the book thinking that Hesiod is trying to erase her and trying to erase her parents from time so that she can't stop him. And these are not easy things to forgive. I, I I can't envision myself doing this. And there are pressures on Hannah not to forgive Hesiod, and, and especially not to give him the mercy of allowing him to stay with his family rather than go back to Kalos and face punishment from the Sentinels. In particular, one of her friends is really very strenuously arguing for her to be almost vengeful rather than merciful. And we do come to learn, of course, that this is not actually her friend. It's a Colossian lookalike who is in some sense testing her to see if she might be the guardian. And of course, this display of mercy is one of the ways that they know that she's the real deal here. And even while this secret Colossian is playing the devil on her shoulder, we have the Colossian Theseus, right? Hesiod's partner on his mission. Theseus is supporting Hannah, and he even says this. Here's what he says. He says, Hatred is a murdering savage, even if you never act on it. When you harbor such dark emotions, you die inside, little by little, piece by piece. 
Now, of course, forgiveness and mercy are important Christian virtues, though, of course, they're also hardly the exclusive domain of Christianity. But Morrison is a Christian pastor, and so here, in writing this book, he is thinking of Christian teachings on this subject. And we see other Christian virtues lauded here as well, including charity. We see this when Hannah's great-grandfather buys a small house for a a woman and her son who have fled an abusive relationship and are having trouble supporting themselves. In general, I think it's fair to say that Morrison is concerned all through this book to show us humans being at their best, to show us humanity's capacity, and, and especially, I think, each individual's capacity for genuine goodness. And we get a number of speeches to this effect, all of which I think are great, and I'm going to read two of them to you. This first speech comes from the Colossian, who is uh, masquerading as Hannah's friend. She is far too impulsive, sometimes irrational, emotional, and headstrong. However, she is also wise beyond her years, compassionate, devoted, ever loyal, and steadfast. It would seem Paul Lerner has prepared her adequately. And what I love about this speech is that not only does Morrison emphasize wisdom and compassion here, but he ties this back to his theme of family. It's Hannah's great-grandfather, that's Paul Lerner here in the speech, it's Hannah's great-grandfather who has taught her these things. This is part of what makes family so important. In the second speech, this is a little longer one, the second speech is Theseus speaking. This is one of the reasons we chose you, you know. I mean, humanity. You, here on this world. You have an incredible capacity for optimism. You choose to see the very best of what is possible. It is a remarkable attribute. And then he goes on to say, and this is really the the longer of the speeches here. Here's what he goes on to say. Humanity is flawed. In your time, your world has nearly torn itself apart in two great world wars. In this time, they fight over something as trivial as a tract of land or natural resources. And nothing will change. Not in a hundred years, not in a thousand You allow yourselves to be divided over the natural pigments in your skin and ignore the common things that make all of you uniquely human. Your appearance, religion, philosophy, politics, these things should never drive people down the path of hatred. You have yet to figure it out, but your diversity is one of the pillars of your world that makes your species strong. Tragically, however, humanity has a long history of trying to wipe out anyone or anything that is different, including one another. In contradiction to this narrow mindset, your world sends radio signals deep into the heavens, searching for intelligent life, naively thinking that out there somewhere are benevolent beings eager for contact. Even now, you transcend your shortcomings with your capability to show compassion and strength, to embrace logic and emotion, and to push the boundaries of what is possible by pursuing the impossible. And this speech, this speech is really the whole program of the story, just wrapped up in a nutshell here. We should be kind and loving to each other, and we can be if we would stop fighting over our differences and instead embrace those differences as a strength. And also if we would stop being greedy and build an equitable economic system. And if you're thinking this sounds a lot like Star Trek, you're not wrong. This is a speech that is very much modeled on James Kirk or Jean-Luc Picard, who frequently are explaining to a variety of space aliens, but you know, really to us, the audience, of course, that we have this capacity for goodness, we have this capacity for greatness, and that a society that has moved beyond war and othering, and that has solved the problems of poverty, is possible. This is within our reach. We could do this. 
And as I said at the top of the show, Morrison is the host of Metatrex, a Star Trek and philosophy podcast. So he has spent a lot of time thinking about the optimistic philosophy of Star Trek. And some of that is here. Some of that is here intersecting with his Christian themes of mercy and forgiveness. Ultimately, all of this leads to the place of humanity within the cosmos. And and this is really just teased in this book, though that's clearly going to be the focus of the subsequent volumes. And in this book, in this series, the place of humanity within the cosmos is that there is a cosmic battle between the forces of good and evil all throughout the universe, and that humans are in the middle of it. In fact, as we already know in this book, sentient beings are what the battle is for. Basically, it's the exact plot of, of Job. They're going to be fighting over the souls of humans and other sentient beings. And the time travel cube is an object created to fight the darkness. And and that's why the sentinels have been looking for it. Uh, The Sentinels, by the way, are are something akin to angels, though they are much more mundane than that. And uh, maybe it's better to say that they're Tolkien's elves, something between humans and angels. The Sentinels have special knowledge of God's creation, and they know something of what the future brings, and they know all about how darkness came into creation to begin with, though we only get hints of a rebellion at the dawn of time. And if you're thinking of of Lucifer, you're not wrong. And Morrison even gives us a description of what this cosmic battle is like when he has Hesiod explain it to, to Hannah. Wherever there are light bearers, the darkness will be near, waiting for an opportunity to strike back against those who threaten its dominion. And this really is Job, right? But I'm also intrigued by the use of the word Lucifer in this description, right? He uses the word light bearer, which is just a literal English translation of the word Lucifer. And here, Lucifer is a victim of the darkness. And uh, this really excites me. I'm, I'm excited to see what surprises Morrison has in tweaking our pop culture traditions about Lucifer and about the rebellion in heaven. And, you know, by pop culture, of course, I mean Milton. And all of this even ties back into the, the Star Trek optimism that we were just talking about, because the way to fight the darkness is hope. And we are told this several times throughout the book. This is one of these things that Morrison really hammers home the way that a good YA novel should. And so in the end, it is also this capacity for optimism, this human capacity for optimism that is also the antidote to a very real evil in the world. All right, let's talk about some strengths and some weaknesses. I think you could tell that I really enjoyed this book, but I do think that there is a problem with the voice that Morrison chose to tell this story. Ostensibly, this is a story that is being told to us by a 13-year-old, a brand new 13-year-old. She was 12 yesterday, but it never really feels like it. We get a lot of stage-setting descriptions that really would be more at home in a third-person account and which definitely do not feel like an adolescent wrote them, or really, they don't even feel like they're observations that an adolescent would make about the world. On top of that, we also get a a cut scene in chapter 7 that is still narrated by Hannah, but which shows us a conversation among some Colossian sentinels that she was not present for. And because Morrison breaks the rules of the first-person narrative here, I got really distracted by trying to figure out how Hannah knows about this conversation and what that says about this book as a, a tangible artifact in this imaginary world, like why Hannah's writing it, who she's writing it for, when she's writing it, and so on. But while I did find that particular moment jarring, and I do think the book would have been stronger if Morrison had just written it in the third person, it does not get in the way of my enjoyment of the book. And my enjoyment of the book was was quite high. So let's talk about some strengths. 
And the first strength has to be the messaging to young people. This message of hope and optimism is just awesome. And the emphasis on the virtues of mercy, forgiveness, and and, and charity, this is something that we all need to hear from time to time. But it's especially something that young adults need to hear as they are preparing to go out into the world. And in addition to this, Morrison's story provides adolescents with a really great model of other adolescents in a variety of healthy relationships. We see that with her friends, we see that with her family, and all of that is really excellent. Also in this book, young readers are going to be exposed to two bits of history, the assassination of JFK and then also ancient Greece. They're going to get to know who Hesiod is, which is something I definitely wish my 18-year-old freshman would arrive at university already knowing. And of course, this book is crawling with ancient Greek, and I love it. Kalos and Hesiod and Theseus and Pandora and so on are all Greek. And we get some concepts in Greek as well, including the time travel cube, which Morrison really calls uh, a puxis, which does just mean box. And also the ancient Greek word for hope, elpis. And if I know that I had encountered this book at 10 or 11, the use of Greek here and the lines of Hesiod that we get would have lit my mind on fire. And so in the end, I think this is a really successful book that I would be delighted to see a sixth grader reading. And I am definitely going to be giving out copies to the kids in my family come Christmas time. Oh, yeah. Before we leave this segment, I should also mention all of the Star Trek jokes. There are a lot of them, and they absolutely made my day. I'm not sure they'll make the day of the kids I'm envisioning reading this book, but they definitely made my day. I love them. Well, on that note, that is going to bring my review to a close. I really do hope that you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about the themes and motifs and the strengths and weaknesses that I focused on. But as always, especially on what I left out, and I feel like I have left out something significant, and, and that is the presence of Hesiod as a character here. Of all the literary figures that Morrison could have chosen, why Hesiod? Why not Ovid? Why not Charles Dickens? And why place so much emphasis on works and days? Hesiod's poems, works and days. I have some ideas, but I think it would be fun to work through them together on the forum. So come talk to me about this. All right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Media. Next time, we're going to be reading Cats Have No Lord by Will Shatterly, a little fantasy book. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.